Welcome to the AdOML podcast. This is Adam Becker. Today, I bring you a conversation with Alia Abara. Alia is a researcher in statistical physics, and she wrote her doctoral thesis about the link between statistical physics and inference problems. And she's here to discuss it with us. We covered such topics as statistical physics, the long legacy of physics on machine learning, phase transitions in information theory, fitness landscapes, and lots of other topics. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I'll make sure to add a link to her paper below. It was a beautiful read. And I now bring you Alia Abara. I am here with Alia Abara. Alia, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. You have published a paper, I believe it was for your uh, PhD dissertation, called Statistical Mechanics of Inference Problems with Correlated Patterns an incursion between the replica method and message passing algorithms. Mm-hmm, that's correct. And so this is a wonderful piece. It comes just short of 190 pages. So it looks like a lot of work went into it. And it's, it explores sort of like the boundaries, if I'm understanding it right, between machine learning and statistical physics. Uh, and so it, it demonstrates a fluency in, in both camps. How did you, do you want to, take a little bit of time and just like tell us how you came to be thinking and researching these topics. Sure. So this means I kind of tricked her into believing that I know a lot about machine learning, which is really wrong, actually, because <laughs> I really come from the physics community. And, and I was just doing statistical physics, which is a field that dates back to like the 19th century. And it turns out that it has a lot of links with inference problems and some interesting machine learning questions. And people now are very interested, excited about all of those topics. So I happen to work uh, on the physics side, but connected to those machine learning questions. So, but I'm really like from the physics community myself. So you did your undergrad in, in physics and is, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And my undergrad is in physics and my PhD was considered a theoretical physics PhD too. So how does it work? Do you then take courses in machine learning or in statistical learning? Like, how do you come to, to learn about these things? It depends how interested you are in the very technical aspects of machine learning. For sure, you can take uh, a few extra classes. Uh, you can also stay more on the math side of the things and just take more math classes or just like really dig into it and try to understand what people are, are doing. It really depends uh, where you lie on this like really huge crossroads puzzle where you have people from very different communities. So your PhD uh, research was primarily about statistical physics. Yes, exactly. Do you see a wide crossover between statistical physics or machine learning, or is that still somewhat of uh, like a new territory? Like, how, yeah, how prevalent are, is, the, is the intersection? So it's actually not new. I mean, this, this kind of crossover with neural networks and statistical physics started actually in the 1980s. So it's quite old. Uh, and then after some time, the research in this field died out and now with the new big data era people are getting interested again but we already have a lot of techniques that were developed in physics that could be used uh, applied to inference problems and i feel that a couple of years ago maybe like maybe like 10 to 15 years ago it wasn't still very clear what we could make between those two fields and then people tried to have very interesting results in machine learning coming from physics and I think that now it's very relevant to use those tools because we're trying to assess the theoretical results and like bring more theory into machine learning, which is really necessary because it's very hard to understand machine learning. 
And that's why it's really interesting to have those math and physics tools. It feels like when you study machine learning, there's already a residue of the physics influence in at least in information theory, right? Like we have concepts like entropy, yeah, you often exactly. talk about temperature. So it feels like those two sort of like go, go way back. So can you help to motivate a little bit what those links are? So probably some of our listeners will have taken, let's say high school physics. And when you're first introduced to physics, you can think about, let's say a billiard ball, right on, on the table and it's hit by a cue and there's some forces acting on it. And it's, maybe pulled back by friction and it hits another ball. And everything about this picture is very deterministic and at least on the face of it, somewhat straightforward to calculate. Mm -hmm. And when people think about statistics, they often think about probabilities and an encapsulation of uncertainty, but there seems to have been nothing uncertain about that billiard ball example. So how does statistics smuggle itself into our physics? So I think for people who have taken physics lessons, you have also heard of thermodynamics, right? All the laws mm -hmm. about temperature and entropy. And that also comes from physics, but it's not the same kind of description as just having this billiard ball and then determining its speed and velocity. So it's, it actually stems from a different approach. And thermodynamic laws, they actually come from statistical physics. And the idea of statistical mechanics, which came to life around the 19th by people like Maxwell, Boltzmann, uh, very important names, is that you want to move away from this very deterministic description and you need a probabilistic one. And that is really needed if you're looking uh, at ensembles with a very large number of elements in them. So if you're looking at a box with a gas in it, you're not going to say, all right, I have billions and billions of atoms and I'm going to describe every single one and determine its speed and, and etc. like the thing that you were saying basically. And then I'll take this and say there are billions and billions of them. So they're like 10 to the power 23, the number of Avogadro, mm -hmm. the average, and determine what's happening in the box. That's really irrelevant as a way to describe just a guess. And that's why statistical physics come in. And the idea is that you go from a microscopic description of what's happening inside the box, of what's happening for every single atom, and you move to a macroscopic description of this box. And during this process, you find some parameters that you will call order parameters, which actually make sense for describing the box. So, so you will find temperature and pressure. And that's interesting, because if I tell you the temperature inside the box is this temperature, it means something from you that is describing the state of the box on average, but I'm not telling you, well, this atom is moving this way because you don't care about this, right? And to be able to do this description of a very large number of elements, you actually need more probabilistic description of it. And that's where you manage to like make out what parameters are actually interesting and have this like microscopic description that shows up. So that's really the idea of statistical physics. So if you zoom in, you might have some of these deterministic things that you're talking about, but once you kind of zoom out, you might actually have a very different description that like, is actually more relevant to you. The idea is that it isn't that we're losing the determinism. Like at every individual atomic level, you could still go and calculate the various forces that are acting on it and that are guiding its trajectory. But once you're operating at such a massive scale of... 10 to the 23 or so molecules, 
you're not interested in the individual anymore. You're just interested in the collective or in the yeah, ensemble. Exactly. I mean, think of it as if you're studying a crowd, which is also an application of statistical physics. And sure, you can describe each individual as in, okay, you have a person and if his neighbor will move right, he will move right too, and, and then see what every single person is doing. But if you're interested in, will this crowd saturate? Will the people manage to get out of the building? How fast are they? Uh, what is the flow of this group of people? And you did kind of a more general description. So of course, it stems from the fact that individually, each person is doing something, but that's not really what you're interested in. And you want, the, you want something for a very large number of people in the end. So there are other concepts then that maybe like these are the order parameters or other sort of like higher level emergent concepts like temperature yeah. that then emerge and, and entropy and, um, and work and heat and all these different things that you remember from sort of like from, from thermodynamics. Yes. How do they then influence information theory or, or, or machine learning? Like why is there a physical sort of intuition behind it or is it only a mathematical it's just a similar mathematical representation of some similar concepts. Well, one could argue that if you have the same mathematical description, it means you can always find a way to connect the ideas, right? You just need to formulate <laughs> it in a nice way. Well, you mentioned the entropy. So Shannon's entropy was actually named after the physical entropy. And it was really a conversation between those two people. And they were like, hey, this is like the same quantity. Let's give it the same name. So it's really the same idea in it. Um, I think you can always say that there's really a deeper link in just the way that you, in the way that you're asking questions. In physics, we like to look at systems and to say that they are evolving, they have some dynamics, and then they reach an equilibrium state, and you maybe can describe them with their energy, and you ask questions like, how can you minimize this energy? And in machine learning, you do similar things in the sense that when you're doing gradient descent, you're moving through you're moving through a landscape with a lot of parameters that control this landscape. And it's very similar to what you get in physics, because in physics, sometimes you also want to move through an energy landscape, which is controlled by a lot of parameters. So if you think of the two things as just basically the same question, then suddenly all the physics that you have has to say, this is an equilibrium situation. This is a local maximum. This is a stable or a metastable state. Uh, these things acquire kind of a new meaning and can really help you just phrase the problem differently. So in the physics community, there is a focus on energy and some, I'm not sure if it's a law or some principle of minimizing energies, or you're likely to see systems being in some form of stability when the energy is, is low. And in the machine learning community, there is that similar emphasis on a loss function, which is the yes, thing that you're then trying exactly. to minimize. Is there, have you seen some, some back pressure on physics too. Has physics or statistical physics been influenced backwards by advances in machine learning as well? In this community, um, it's more like the, the question that I ask in machine learning motivate the physics. And we're going to really try and say, all right, you have this loss function. How can we interpret this as an energy with the right definitions and variables? And then we can apply whatever we know about it. So it's more like we have this very interesting question and what can we say? So there's some kind of, of back pressure in this sense of just trying to map the two. But, but the mapping between uh, the energy and the loss function is actually very widely used and very relevant. Uh, and and it, it gives a lot of interesting results because in physics, sometimes we have tools to actually compute the energy 
and to actually determine what the minimum is and have some information about the structure and the shape of the energy landscape. And of course, this is very useful if you have an algorithm which is moving on this landscape, it's very nice to have this information in it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so you mentioned that instead of having to calculate individually uh, every particular atom, we can emerge some types of more macro observations and concepts. And in a very similar way in, in machine learning, sometimes you have lots of different parameters mm -hmm. and you're trying to just sort of like optimize all of them or find some weights for all of them. What are these parameters in machine learning? Is it when, should we be thinking about all of the weights and biases of a neural network? Should we be thinking about the weights of, of like a, a linear model? Like what are those? Uh, yeah, they could, be, they could be the weights. Uh, they could be the, the amount of information that you have. This would be, for instance, an order parameter. Uh, I think you might have seen that in, in some cases in machine learning, you have kind of a, what we would call in physics a phase transition in which say you're getting some information, you're trying to infer something out of it. And the algorithm is just giving a very, like a very bad error and the loss is just terrible. And then suddenly it starts working. And this is just like conditioned by the fact that you're varying one single parameter. And that's the same thing you would get in physics with a phase transition. And those, those parameters would be the weights or, or really anything like the, the number of things that you're getting. So really depending on your problem, it could be a bit of anything. Phase transition makes a lot of intuitive physical sense in the sense that sometimes I start with water and then it, it, it turns into ice or goes into, into uh -huh. steam. Uh, so there's almost like a physical character that is fundamentally changing about mm -hmm. the material. In inference problems, that doesn't feel quite as intuitive, but in the paper you manage to sort of draw the, draw the line between how we can think about um, uh, phase transitions in like information theoretic space and the ones in physics. And so maybe we can get a little bit deeper into what the problems were that you were doing your, your research on. Mm -hmm. And the paper shows a few different inference problems, right, that you've, that you've looked at. Can you tell us a little bit about what those problems were and what you were trying to solve or even just select one as an example? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think if you want to start and having a look at those questions, it's always interesting to start with like the simplest problem you could possibly have. And I would start with like just compressive sensing or compressed sensing. And that's just like a linear problem in which you, you get measurements and you have measurements and you multiply them by a matrix. So it's all linear. Uh, and what you have is the measurements out of it. So the multiplied vector and you try to reconstruct the initial vector that you had before the multiplication. So it's just a simple thing. It's like if you have a, a vector X multiplied by a matrix F, and then you get Y equal FX, and say that you know Y, and you know that the matrix F is sampled from a given probability distribution, and you wanna try and recover X. So just a linear thing. And on this problem, a lot of progress has been done actually by, by the physics community. Um, and what we see is that depending on, on the, the size of the measurements that you get, if it's large enough, you manage to reconstruct it with some algorithms. If it's small enough, you can't reconstruct it anymore. And you actually have a whole physics derivation for this that will help you and determine the optimal error that you could ever get with any algorithm. So you have this theory line, what you call the information theoretic line. 
And then you will have uh, an actual algorithm that you might look at and you're like, okay, how does it perform? Does it perform well enough? Does it not perform well enough? And often you have kind of a buffer zone, which we call the hard phase. And when you're in the hard phase, it's mean that theoretically, if you had an infinite amount of time, you could reconstruct your signal because, I mean, you know the math, you could work it out. It just takes an infinite amount of time. But actually, you have no algorithm that manages to do it in polynomial time. And you have this kind of transitions that show up in many of those problems. So I looked a bit at compressed sensing, but uh, also more a bit more elaborate questions would begin, which begin to resemble an actual neural network. Because if you if you add a nonlinearity, does a thing. So you have a signal, and then multiply by a matrix, and then add a nonlinear function on it. This begins to be like like a real unit in neural net, and you get something out of it, and you try to reconstruct the initial signal or something like that. Uh, this be becomes very, like the math really become tough in this. And we still have a way in physics to try and describe it in some settings. So that's very interesting in the crossover between the physics computation and the actual algorithm that we have. And if the physics could actually compute what the algorithms are managing to make, can the physics predict the loss that you're getting, for instance, out of your algorithm? And in some cases, yes. So I did a bit of that, and it was a bit of mix and match of physics and information theory and random matrix theory. So it's all about the crossover between you have this question, you can describe an energy landscape, uh, you have this information theoretic bounds, and then you have an algorithm. And what are the transitions between those different phases? Very interesting. So in the compressed sensing example, the mm -hmm. picture we should have in mind is, let's say you have a matrix of observations, you called it F, right? So we yes. could just picture like a big table or yes. many rows, each column is a particular dimension of an observation, mm -hmm. right? And, and it could be, it could, it could, you can have many rows, it can have many columns, it can have more columns than rows, exactly. many, many more columns than rows. We can sort of talk about what the impact of the shape of that table is. Exactly, and the ratio between the number of lines and number of, the numbers of rows and number of columns is actually a very important parameter, which will show up to be some kind of order parameter to define the phase transitions. Mm. So, okay, so we have this table, this is F, and then you have a set of weights, which you called X, right? And this essentially gives us a sense of the weighted average of how to mix together the various columns to produce exactly. a, a particular Y. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the compressed sensing example, what we're trying to do is we are, we are starting with the Y. Exactly. And we are starting with the weights and we're trying to recreate what that initial row of observation could have been. And we call it compressed sensing because usually we're interested in a smaller number of rows than the number of columns. Did I say this right? Yes. So the initial signal is say very tall and what you get after the weight is very small. So in a way, like your information gets out compressed. Can you say that one more time? Mm -hmm, sure. So you have an initial signal that you don't know that you would like to infer, which is very tall. And then you multiply it by a matrix, which is short and fat. It's fat because it matches the tallness of the vector. Mm. And out of this, you get a short vector. Got it. Okay. So that's why there's the, the that's the compression aspect of it. Exactly. And you have many of those short vectors measurements, which make up your table of, of measurements. You have a large number of them. Um, and it's called compressed because like the, the, the weight matrix will be short and fat. <laughs> yeah. 
in this is similar to the overdetermined and underdetermined systems in a way. It is. Um, I mean, it is similar in the sense that what you would call overdetermined and underdetermined, it means that you have this parameter which quantifies how much information you have, and you might have just enough or not enough or too much, and we'd call it overdetermined and, and underdetermined. And it's the same for this, like the size of the weight matrix will tell you how much, like, how much equations you have basically to try and reconstruct your initial signal. So for practitioners of machine learning, sometimes you, you look at a, at, a, at, a, at a matrix like this and you say, you know what, I have way more columns than I have rows. This is gonna be very difficult to do or to do reliably without overfitting. Mm -hmm. uh, or you say, oh, you know, I have just a handful of columns and tons of rows. You know, I can solve this in a yeah. highly determined sense. And so what the contribution here seems to be is that you could crystallize and distill that intuition into something that seems to be similar to a phase transition. Is that right? Exactly. And ideally, you could pinpoint exactly how much you need uh, and, and what the loss would be precisely for depending on how much information you get. You could be able to say, if you have this number of rows, those, then you get a good error and this number, then you have zero. And you could really like have those transitions fitted out perfectly with like analytical formulas that come from physics and math that truly tell you what your loss is going to be in these cases. Is the approach of bringing statistical physics in currently still somewhat of a theoretical approach or is there like a pragmatic aspect to it? Um, are we expected to begin to solve inference problems using the formalism that we get from statistics? Or is this placing theoretical bounds on what the best performance could be? Like, how, how do you see the, the pragmatic versus theoretical so aspects? It is, it is giving performance bounds, but in many cases, it could also inspire the way we derive algorithm. Or conversely, it could tell you how well an algorithm is performing. So it's not, it's not like only theory, it can also have some links with your precise algorithm and tell you really how you can perform on those problems. The only issue is that, uh, okay, we're making a lot of amazing things, but we're still very limited because machine learning problems are very hard. And the hardest part is that the information you get is like, it's real, very structured data, which is very complicated to define. And in physics, you always start by saying, okay, this is, Gaussian or this is random and it comes from a given distribution and Bayesian inference. And so we're still limited in a sense that we have a hard time attacking real complicated problems. So we're lay layering it out. So we're starting with the simple basic bricks, which are already very hard to understand. And hopefully we'll manage, you know, like make a Lego house and, and then have a more complicated description. So it is very useful, but we're not at the point where we're like, oh, you have a machine learning problem. Okay and give you like just an analysis. So we're still pushing in this direction. You're mentioning some assumptions that we need to make in physics just to make the, the problem a little bit more tractable. Mm -hmm. Are these assumptions about the nature of the data, about the shape of the data, about the shape of the relationship between the different columns? Like what are the kinds of assumptions that go into this? Exactly what you mentioned. It could be about the shape of the data. It could be about some structure of, of the weight matrix that you're looking at. 
So essentially, they're this type of things. And, and we're always doing, we do, we're always averaging on a large number of examples to get kind of an average typical result. If you just give me any data, probably I have no, I have no description of it. I mean, I need at least something. I need some probability. I need some, some description to put in my, in my formula and be using my math tools on them. But if it's really real data and I have no idea of the structure, then we kind of lost. What is the vision then of pulling in statistical physics? Let's say imagine in 10 or 20 years of successful research, are we likely to see the boundaries between the two disciplines sort of like begin to shift? Are they, are, is there no boundary at all? How should we kind of like picture what the end result might look like? Well, I think you have, I mean, you have a mix between physics and machine learning and, and very fundamental math and optimization and dramatic theory. Um, I think the ideal thing would be to begin and really, really understand some questions, some parts of the problem and reach a level of understanding in which you can just really try to see which community is asking which question and in what sense are we considering the same system? And and how can we communicate to our different like levels of jargon vocabulary? Um, I don't think like the, it's not about the boundaries shifting. It's just like, I mean, you could say science is just one whole thing and you're looking yeah. at it with a different perspective. But it's actually very hard to just try and understand, like just try and understand what question people are asking and how it's different from your own question on the same system. It's already very tough. So I think the hope would be beginning to really understand very well some of those basic questions I mean, we're already getting to some more complicated. It's not like we're only doing very easy things, but just get a full understanding and then building up and, and introducing more and more structure in the data to the point that we're describing more and more of the actual problems that are interesting to different communities. And I'm sure that by doing this, I mean, it's already happening because some of the results that were derived in physics were then proven by people from math who are then interested in machine learning. And I think we're really teaching each other a lot about those problems. And hopefully it will become easier to just discuss them with like this multidisciplinary point of view in the future. Yeah, no, that's great. There's one hope that I kind of picked up from, from reading the paper, which is that if there's a way to infuse deeper physical intuition and physical understanding in some of these otherwise black box machine learning models, yeah. right? Like there's just, sometimes it's so difficult to wrap your head around okay, but what do these concepts even mean and how do they relate to one another? But in physics, you do, you are able to sort of bootstrap some intuition, even yeah. if only because you're starting with sometimes like, as you said, like you're building the Lego house, right? Like just like yeah, one block exactly. at a time. And so it, it, there's a way in which you can refine your intuition at one scale and then be able to just amplify it. And it could still make sense in a much bigger scale. And it feels very often like right now in machine learning, we're operating in that very large scale without having a very deep intuition for what is happening, you know, in that first building block. And it feels like there's something missing as a result. And yeah, I, exactly. I'm sort of like hoping, yeah, this was kind of like the, the, the hope that I got from the paper is that there is some light shining on that path that, to just <laughs> demystify, you know, like that, oh, yeah. that lack of intuition right now. Um, yeah, it's true that machine learning, we're going so fast and we don't have the time to stop and like understand everything that's happening, even for the most easy processes. 
So I really hope that physics and math can give this intuition. Actually, I've seen it. I mean, some of the people have been around, some professors who are obviously very good in this. They got to this point where they could like see some things in machine learning mm. because of their knowledge from physics and math. And that's really amazing, of course. Um, but I mean, we, machine learning is amazing, right? It's, it's, it's really great that we got to, to, to this point and we really need to understand it better to be able to push more. So I think it's quite critical that we try to, to stop for a minute and say, okay, let's keep going. Let's start to understand what's going on here because then you could use it even better and it could push math and physics better, <laughs> further. We all want this, right? Yeah, no, 100%. One of the themes of this podcast is to try to better wrap our heads around how to engineer AutoML systems. So mm. these are like systems that can do a lot of the machine learning for us or to at least abstract away and and automate some of the things that are otherwise very time consuming for, for data scientists to do. And I couldn't help but think that it could very well be the case that having a deeper physical understanding of a system could allow us to use the technology differently. So if we could sort of describe, you know, having a little bit of like extra, like excited, okay, this has like an excited state in its energy. Maybe we need to just find a way to drop its energy level lower, or we have to just increase the temperature here. We need, we need mm -hmm. like a, a thermal bath <laughs> right there in order to better you know, connect the system. So it, it feels like there's also an aspect of <coughs> sort of like driving the, the technology of automating many of these systems better once we have a better, deeper physical intuition. Yeah, I mean, if it gives you, in a sense, a way to measure how things are going, or just a prediction of what your loss is at this point and what's going on, then for sure you can help it to adjust a better, better system behind it. Are there open questions that currently excite you in statistical physics? I kind of shifted my focus after my PhD because now I'm working on statistical physics, but um, more applied to biological systems. Although I really, I still really like like all the theory that's happening at the crossroads between math and physics, but on everything related to machine learning, pretty much everything with more complicated systems and and more layers in the neural network. And once you throw in some some more more structure in the data, just everything understanding about this becomes really harder. So you have a lot of open questions. It's really just like even taking a simple problem and putting a more sophisticated structure of the data and then predicting things out of it becomes very difficult. Yeah, I saw in the paper you were, you started out with, I believe like a random matrix. And then you said, okay, well now let's have one that, ha that is like right rotationally invariant. And now yeah. let's just see how, <laughs> how the physics is, how the physics changes as a result. And yes. so is it like a similar kind of move? It's like, okay, so now it's right rotationally invariant. Now let's add a bunch of other invariances. Let's add a bunch of other complexity to the matrix. So basically we, we always start with saying, hey, things are Gaussian. And then we say, okay, maybe things are not so Gaussian. And then we, of course, we try to compute more complicated things. And one of the things we were managing to compute in physics is, is the energy of those systems but when you still have some randomness structure to the data, and this is where this, this orthogonally invariant thing came from. It was just a kind of a constraint we needed to have, which was much softer than just having a Gaussian matrix, right? But still some kind of randomness that you need to be able to do your computation. So that's why we kind of took this step, but we'd like to do even more steps and have more complicated structure for the data. You're currently working on biological systems? 
Could say so. I mean, I'm working a little bit on uh, what, what I will now call fitness landscapes, <laughs> which are really just, again, landscapes. So they could be a loss landscape and it could be an energy landscape, it could be a fitness landscape because it defines how a species or can survive better than the other one. But it's always similar questions as to how do you manage to move uh, on this landscape and, and where do you get and what the structure of the landscape and how do you get there? So it's really all of these things really come together <laughs> at some point. But what's interesting that in those different communities, people have the same objects, but they don't ask the same question. In physics, you might ask where the minimum and in machine learning, you might ask, where is my algorithm getting? And in more biology, you might ask, okay, after how long would it take me to reach a certain point? And if you have a different question, suddenly it might become very hard to answer with a different tool. Yeah, that's beautiful how they all sort of fuse together at some level when mm -hmm. we were started, starting to work on like meta heuristics and optimization. At, at first, we were very drawn to evolutionary and like genetic programming. Yeah. And then we started <laughs> modifying it with some more of like a simulated annealing kind of like a thermal aspect yes. to it. And now I see that like many of those thermal uh, like analogies are very similar to the ones that you see in statistical physics. And so they just all kind of braid together nicely. Yeah. I mean, each time you get something which is thermal, it's the temperature, it's, it will be the same old temperature from the statistical physics description, usually. If people are interested in the link between statistical physics and machine learning, is there some resource you'd recommend folks to explore? Uh, you have some nice books and you have some papers. If you're looking for um, a review paper, for instance, uh, you have a nice one. Let me get the title for you. You have a nice one uh, called Statistical Physics of Inference Thresholds and Algorithms. It's by Lenkas Deborova and Florence Zakala. It's just kind of a review about all of this thing, like the link between phase transitions and algorithm statistical physics. And then you have books. Uh, one of them could be, I mean, they're a bit old now, but they're very interesting. You have a book called Information Physics and Computation. And this one will really merge uh, the information theory part with the physics and also a bit of algorithmic input by uh, Montanari and Mazar. And you have really a lot of resources because this year the Nobel Prize Parisi was awarded to someone who was actually working on, on these topics. Hmm. So everyone's talking about it, which is very <laughs> exciting. And we're all very happy about it. But yeah, you really have a bunch of resources out there. Wonderful, thank you very much. And uh, we would love to have you back uh, to so talk about the research that you're currently working on. Sure. And I'll add those links uh, in the description for the podcast below as well. Thank you so much. Alia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again.